This episode is brought to you by Tarkine. Tarkine produces the world's most eco-friendly, high-performance running shoes. Along with this, they take responsibility for the full life cycle of their shoes. Tested on elite runners. Suitable for anyone who cares about the planet, comfort and style. Tarkine. Hashtag run the future. Now available at Tarkine.com. Use code RTPODCAST for 10% off your first order. G'day guys, my name's Dan Wallace and on this episode of the Runners Tribe podcast, my guest is Matthew Mildenhall, performance physiologist at High Performance Sport NZ. Now Matt's story is an interesting one given that prior to his current role, he was for many years an elite athlete himself. A massively talented junior, Matt went on to run for the University of Villanova where he was a two-time All-American in track and cross-country. Matt had success under three very distinct running philosophies and given what he now knows about the science of training, we were able to talk through some of the key differences during his career as an athlete. We go through his junior years under the Auckland-based Lydiard system, training with heart rate in college and then utilising a more refined physiological testing protocol post-collegiately. We cover quite a bit in this conversation, so I've included a couple of links in the show notes that might be helpful. As always, I hope you enjoy the conversation and can take something positive away from this one for your own running and training. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Matt Mildenhall. But how how would you describe yourself now? Like what's your official role? Yeah, so my role currently, is as a performance physiologist and technique analyst um, with High Performance Sport New Zealand. So I work across several sports, mainly in sprint kayak um, as a performance physiologist with a little bit of more performance analysis, um, uh, analyzing sessions for stroke rate, speed, etc. Um, on the performance side, and then obviously the internal uh, measures of things like heart rate, lactate, VO2. Um, as a physiologist for um, endurance athletics, um, yeah, performance physiologist there, and then also doing a little bit of um, performance analysis for boxing uh, as well, which is a little bit different. Um, but was a really fascinating uh, thing to tie, dive into just before Tokyo. So yeah, I kind of cover a few different things, a um, bit of variety uh, amongst my role. But um, yeah, it's been really, really awesome. So who were you focused on mostly? Because I mean, kayak, boxing and endurance. For someone like me, I look at that and think, okay, that's pretty broad, but... Um, what were you focused on mostly with, with Tokyo? What was there any particular emphasis? Yeah, yeah. So I was so obviously my role in kayak was yeah, just preparation um, for the team as a whole. So men's and women's squads uh, in their daily training environment, analyzing um, yeah training data, um, recovery, wellness, all that sort of thing. Doing physiological testing in the lab. And in the field for three years leading up to four years leading up to uh, to Tokyo, my role in athletics was a bit more nuanced. It was more around um, the preparation for 
the hot climate that was hot and humid climate was anticipated to be there. Obviously, that shifted a little bit with the move to Sapporo, um, but there was still a lot of emphasis around uh, acclimation and acclimatization for heat, uh, and then just cooling and nutrition strategies to enable our uh, our marathon and race walkers, particularly, but all the way down to to the five k. Um, with Camille Buscom just to make sure that they were ready to perform uh, when they hit Tokyo or Sapporo. With boxing, um, yeah, it was just a really cool side project that I ended up getting involved in um, with David Nika, who is, uh, well, bronze medalist at, in the heavyweight division. Um, so he, yeah, two-time Commonwealth Games gold medalist. Um, and we decided to try and dive into some uh, competitive analysis for him. So yeah, it was a little bit of a curveball, a little bit of a right turn, so to speak, for me, but um, a bit of a fight sports fan. So no, it was pretty awesome to get involved in that. And obviously he did he did really well. Um, actually, all the sports uh, did reasonably well at the, the game. So it was a pretty cool uh, thing to be involved in. And then, yeah, just to finally finish that thought off, I actually was in the, uh, in the satellite village up in Sapporo uh, providing performance physiology support and as a team lead for our marathon and race walkers up in Sapporo. So, yeah, had quite a few fingers in a, quite a few pies um, leading into and going to uh, to the games. I hadn't actually thought about kind of going too deeply into this, but I am curious when it comes to working out heat protocols for, and I'm talking about the endurance athletes now, like the marathon runners, where does someone like yourself and the team at um, High Performance Sport, do you look at what other countries are doing or do you start straight from the literature and figure out your own your own methods? Yeah, so we had quite a few years to get ready. Um, what was one of the great things that High Performance Sport did um, when they found out that uh, Tokyo and, and Rio as well, which was anticipated to be hot, um, and was on some days, not on others, um, but there was a major emphasis on heat. So we've had quite a few years to, I guess, as you mentioned, just leaf through the literature, get a good understanding of what research is actually suggesting around protocols and, and how to design uh, acclimation or reacclimation, and um, you know what's best in terms of sauna versus uh, hot water immersion, being in the natural environment versus being in, in uh, um, let's say a heat chamber. So we had all of that stuff, but we've also yeah, called on uh, international experts as well. So it was, it was a good mix of both. Um, and by the time we got there, I was even learning when I got there um, just around yeah, being exposed to the Australian team, which were fantastic when we got into Sapporo, um, the Canadian team and the likes. Um, just, yeah, just watching and learning um, right till right till the, um, till the start gun. So was it a ma- is it a matter of because you don't want to overwhelm the athletes they already know it's going to be hot mm-hmm. you've got a insane amount of like you said kind of background knowledge it was part of that distilling that down to key bite-sized basic things that the athletes could do mm, yeah um, actually surprisingly it was more yeah, whittling back the amount of, of heat um, in certain times that a lot of the athletes were trying to bring in um, in their preparations um, and just being able to focus 
it's another stress that you need to bring into your already loaded training schedule, especially for a marathon or a race walker. So it's about finding those opportunities where we can integrate it in whilst balancing the overall load um, or stress of training, life, uh, and when you're bringing in the environmental stress of, of heat and humidity. So yeah, it was it was about creating something that was uh, manageable, uh, would get the job done, and then also allow uh, athletes to train because you have to put in the miles, you have to put in the work to be ready to go and compete at the Olympics first and foremost. If you're not fit, you're not going to go well. And then we can really think about the heat on top of that and how that plays in. So it was actually quite interesting. Like at the end of the day, there are simplistic, or it is pretty simple what you need to do. Expose yourself to the environment that you're wanting to compete in. Um, do it for a certain amount of time that you'll get the adaptations you need. Um, and yeah, make sure that you have the nutrition plan honed in, uh, the cooling plans honed in, which just takes some trial and error um, leading in. But yeah, it was actually quite surprising how, I guess, it wasn't a constant thing throughout. It was, all right, we're going to a heat camp here or there. This is when you'll bring it in prior to the taper or um, before your um, last major sort of phase, uh, training phase leading into uh, your taper. How do we bring you into a pre-camp? Um, when can we trial some other things? So yeah, it was, there was a lot to do, but it was pretty basic around those three themes, um, acclimation, cooling, nutrition, hydration. Um, and then just actually, yeah, wasn't as much as a lot of people anticipated, um, just choosing the right times. We could do, we could spend an hour on that, but we're not going to because I have something else I want to talk to you about. But um, <laughs> it involves, you know, speaking of training, plans, preparation, one of the things I want to do is I kind of want to re wind and go back because I think it gives a lot of context too I mean you're working in this world of high performance sport but the big difference is you were a successful amazing athlete yourself and I we're talking about different types of training like I kind of set offline I see your training being broken up into about you know pre-college college and and post-collegiate and I was I want you to just kind of work through and give us some examples of the kind of different approaches you've taken and because you were successful in all three of them you're a phenomenal junior you were all American at Villanova and then you went quite a different you know took a different approach and that still was amazingly successful so can you run us through kind of some of the different approaches Oh, thank you. First and foremost, D-Wall, that's very flattering. Um, but yeah, no, man, I, I think you broke it down perfectly. Like um, when you did mention that offline, I hadn't really realized, but yeah, you can kind of break my my journey up, I guess, into the three distinct stages. So yeah, was a runner, um, still dabble every so often. If you, if you challenge me to three weeks before a marathon, whether I can do it or not, um, I've been known to line up on the start line. So yeah still a true fan of, of running and endurance sport as well um but yeah running was my thing right up until probably the age of year 25 26 um and yeah training from an early age uh probably broke all the generalist sports specialization rules that you hear out there um in the science and and in the public um so yeah i was running a decent amount as a junior um 
very Lydiard based kind of background. Well, one of my major um, uh, influences, uh, my coach through high school, Don McFarquhar, he was actually um, Peter Snell's training uh, speed buddy, um, especially in the summers. They would, they would do the 100-mile weeks and um, go hit the track and Don was apparently quite nippy, uh, quite toey, so he could actually take uh, Sir Peter Snell to the, um, to the line in any speed work. Um, but yeah, that, that period of my life was, was very basic. It was building up volume, low intensity, um, a little bit of yeah, dusting of, of sessions, um, time trials, you know, as, as Lydia had loved. And then, um, yeah, just learning how to race, uh, exposing myself to different racing scenarios and learning the skill of racing. Um, but yeah, was really successful, um, and was made, uh, managed to secure a, a scholarship to Villanova, which was really an awesome period of my life um, and was under the guidance of Adrian Blinko and Marcus O'Sullivan. Um, Adrian, I actually work with now at High Performance Sport, um, but also, yeah, just surrounded by a bunch of really, really talented but also hardworking um, athletes. And, I mean, your listeners would be familiar with a couple of the names on my, on the team with me with, um, you know, the likes of the legendary Matt Gibney. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, <laughs> the man, um, you know, Jordy Williams, uh, Sam McEntee, uh, and then Carl McKenzie. Was, yep, Carl McKenzie, Hugo Beamish, whose brother now is New Zealand uh, indoor 3K. That's uh, right, yeah. holder. Um, and and obviously, Sam, oh, sorry, and I was uh, just there for I think one semester when Pat Tiernan joined the team, so it was a really cool period of oceanic, um teammates that ran through uh went through Villanova with me um and yeah that was that was a really cool experience um Marcus very chill great coach you know in terms of um you're not overcooking you really making sure the race schedule wasn't packed um concentrating on overall development Adrian obviously leading from from the front being a professional athlete breaking the New Zealand record when I was um when I was at Villanova, I believe. Um, but yeah, far more emphasis on, well, an in, uh, increased emphasis on science. So through the through things like the, you know, lactate threshold testing, and we did a lot of work on, at tempo intensity or or just below that second uh, lactate threshold, ventilatory threshold. Um, and then that kind of dipped my toe into the science, um, got me really interested in actually what what all this physiology talk, uh, so to speak, was um, was all about, um, and had some really good success. But also, it was a bit of a rocky road at Villanova, to be honest. Um, you know, going from running three forty two one season to not being able to or struggling to break four minutes in the fifteen hundred the next season, um, going from all American and cross country to sort of last guy on the team. Um, so it was just. Yeah, there's a rocky road, ups and downs, um, and just wanted to, well, really just spark some questions in my head. Um, why? Why is this happening? Doing the same training, getting different responses, what's going on? Um, and then that led me to uh, one of probably the most influential people um, in my career, uh, Shannon Grady, who performance physiologist um, at the time was working with uh, Tennessee women's squad who had, I think, you know, four or four five girls just it seemed like the whole roster was under two minutes for the 800 or um you know breaking NCAA and world records um 
So yeah, it was great to to get to know her because she was actually our, our massage therapist and she cured the uh, you know hundreds of Achilles tendonitis uh, issues that people were having because of the running on the snow and the ice up in up in um, Philly area. Uh, and just got talking to her and after I graduated, yeah, just got really interested in keeping in touch with her and she started coaching me and, and introducing me to, to physiological testing and how it can be used to actually individualize training and. Yeah, that just led me to to go and look into further study. Uh, so, yeah, just through her coaching, through her guidance, and she still I still talk to her regularly um, today. Uh, but yeah, have since gone on to get a master's, get into the world of um, exercise science, and start working with our elite athletes. So it's great to have that experience, kind of from a junior, not really know what I'm up to, just running all the way through to, to being very, very sciencey and under, trying to understand how to implement that into, into a training program. Yeah, you've got a bit more, you're probably doing a lot of physiological, scientific, sound training in high school without really knowing, you know, what it actually, what the label was. I remember at Villanova, you guys had a reputation of, well, I was able to obviously, you know, come see it. you guys came out to Colorado but you you guys seem to train smarter rather than harder all the time and that was something quite foreign to me at the time to seeing you guys doing your mile reps all at different paces because you weren't even looking at paces you were looking at heart rates and that was the first time I'd be, become exposed there and there's that kind of reasonably famous now lecture that Marcus gave where he was talking about his history of, you know, he was going to retire. He started training with heart rate and then it kind of completely influenced his career. And he talked about pushing the line up rather than pulling it up in terms of fitness. He's famously referring to Hugo um, in his talk, even though he doesn't say it. Um, it seems like you had a similar experience. You got a bit of a taste of the science, like you said, um, and you moved into working with Shannon. Can you tell us a bit about exactly the kind of testing you would do with her and um, how you think athletes, you know, could get some more insights and, and fitness from that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. I was definitely, particularly with the, you know, the 80-20 model polarized training, which is coming out, um, you know, concerning sort of how elites train. That was definitely how it was in my junior years. It was you run hard some days, a couple of days a week, and then you run long and reasonably slow or comfortably, um, you know, conversation pace. That was a big one, um, you know, the talk test uh, and just build volume. Um, like I was, I was running singles uh, upwards of 90 minutes during the week and then up to two hours on the weekend. So you just staple running some strides and that was about it. A um, couple of hard sessions. Uh, moving into to, to Villanova, um, with that kind of understanding of of the value of building volume slowly and and um, yeah, just not knowing when to go slow, knowing when to go fast, knowing when to go hard, and and then um, Marcus brought in this this concept of threshold training and, and heart rate based training particularly around that second threshold and um threshold. Yeah, really interesting yeah good old threshold uh, threshold and yeah it was it was great and i mean it was a new stimulus for me and 
I, yeah, off the bat, ran amazingly. Um, you know, off of sort of, I remember my first season, my first year there was terrible. I um, injured, uh, glandular fever, just all the things you don't do in freshman year, I did them. Um, and didn't run the first year. Uh, Dear all smiling because he knows the backstory. But um, yeah, and just, yeah, within, you know, f- six to eight weeks of, or 12 weeks of, of getting back into it, ran a PB in the 1500, um, basically just off a threshold and a little bit of VO2 work. And then, um, uh, yeah, next cross country season, all American, basically just off a threshold with a little bit of VO2 work. And it's like, ah, oh, there's something here. This is amazing. And then, um, yeah, just, it was the ups and downs um, over that. So you're right, D. Well, we did uh, we did train a lot at that heart rate and that threshold, but that kind of got me thinking, um, particularly about Marcus's story. And um, yeah, we, we we love that story, and it's a great story. Um, but also, don't forget, he had run pretty damn well up until that point, um, off of probably a mix of some threshold, but he was. Um, he was doing some hard work, getting in some good volume, 100-mile weeks and that sort of thing. And not to say that that's the magic number, I just it is kind of inbred in us as runners. Um, that sort of is a sign of volume. Um, and, yeah, so it's just interesting to look back on his story and my story and my first year. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, and I just think, yeah, that was a, it was a novel, a novel stimulus. And, and he also had that novel stimulus later on in his career. So, yeah, it is something that's that has – been playing around in my mind a bit around his story um, and around my experiences with threshold uh, base training. And um, yeah, so then moving forward to, I guess I'm sidetracking there, but moving forward to to Shannon's stuff, um, which is the same sort of uh, testing that you would get in any sort of physiological lab, um, just an incremental step test. Uh, but, you know, one of her big uh, things is wanting to make it accessible to to the wider public and and bring it out of the lab and into the field so it's not as scary. You're not hooked up to to gas analyzers and you're on a treadmill when you're not really used to it and you're kind of going to to max to fatigue and I know that can be a scary place and um or just a, a, a you know can bring up some senses of of anxiety around those sorts of tests. So yeah, she's she's great. She's she's created a protocol um, that can be done on the track or on a treadmill um, and just primarily using uh, lactate um, measured after a rep, uh, incremental increases in speed and yeah, finding those finding those heart rate zones that um, you can use submaximally and then just extrapolating out to, to get uh, some of the training paces that you can use um, above threshold for your VO2 max anaerobic uh type sessions above or race pace sessions above VO2 max for some of those middle distance athletes. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, system-based uh, training, uh, go athletics is her thing. And yeah, she's just been a, a pretty awesome um, starting point for me and um, a mentor. And since then, yeah, it's, it's a lot of the same stuff that I'm using in the lab with our athletes. It's yeah, thresholds and understanding, uh, yeah, VO2 max and your capacities, um, what's your anaerobic capacity and then using that data to try and fuel or, or feed into, into training programs, working out weaknesses, working on areas of improvement. Did your last training phase improve where you wanted to improve it? Um, and what are the metrics that we can look at to, to see if that did or did not happen? That kind of brings us then 
on that journey quite nicely back to your your work now it it sounds like what you're describing almost sounds like using that data a bit like how a cyclist would train you know today is at this zone tomorrow is at this zone you watch from steering his power meter the entire time and i know that's not always you know the way you you necessarily would would want to train but um do you see running moving in that direction is almost a bit more scientific like cycling um yes and no and i think it's always you know it's another one of those areas that you can individualize um some athletes will respond really really well to staring at their power meter um I know I was someone, obviously, through my journey that by the end of my um, career, I was really interested in, in understanding, you know, where my heart rates were, what was my speed to heart rate relationship, how is my RPE kind of floating in and around that, like, are they disconnected, um, heart rates elevated, speeds are down, not feeling that great, or heart rate suppressed. Those are the sorts of things that I really took a lot of um, – enjoyment out of understanding for myself and how I was applying myself to my training. But I know a lot of athletes that just don't enjoy that. Um, they do it for another reason. So it's about being flexible um, in how you prescribe that training for them. Uh, you can still bring in some of the, the physiological variables and measures to try and make sure as a coach particularly or as a, pr- a practitioner from my standpoint, kind of feeding information back to the coaches and the athletes. How do we work with how the athlete enjoys doing what they're doing, um, but also still allow ourselves to feed information back to the coaches and athletes so they can make evidence-based decisions down the line. So I think in some respects, yeah, I've seen plenty of of runners that are definitely sciencing it up um, or more able to palate and have an appetite for that. Um, and others just want to get to get to work and just hit their case, hit their volume, um, do the sessions that their coach prescribes and then go over bear after training, you know, keep it pretty old school and they pride themselves on that and that's totally fine. Uh, it just depends on who you are as an athlete, how your coach wants to interact with it um, and, and interact with the science, sorry. Uh, and then, yeah, how do we make sure that we can get the data we need or your coach thinks they need to be able to inform their practice whilst you as an athlete still enjoy what you're doing. So, yeah, in some senses, yes. In some senses, no, which is fine. It's never clear, is it? It's never anyone listening to this wanting some clear yes or no answers on how to train, how not to train, what to measure, what not to measure is probably going to be disappointed. But that leads me towards something we talked about the other day you know, when we were 17, 18, whatever it was, and the big Mzungo comes out, you know, it was a CD, (laughs) DVD. It wasn't, you know, it's actually a CD stuck to a magazine. And we got this brief insight into how elites train. You know, we weren't using social media in that way back then. And like I said to you, the amount of times I heard people quoting the the one percenters and who were throwing medicine balls around because of that, and we weren't we didn't really know what we were doing with these with these one percenters, and they're probably actually more like zero point one percenters. But when an athlete comes to you or they're in the program with High Performance Sport New Zealand, 
what is it that you guys are looking for? How do you filter through some of the noise of marketing and and you know modalities that aren't necessary? What what is it that you guys are looking for that actually provides you know a higher return on investment and not a diminishing point of returns? Mm, yeah, no, it's a it's a great question, and I it's pretty loaded, but yeah, no, it's all good, man. Like I'm, I just I just smile because I remember sitting in the back of our, our team bus watching the Big Mazongo before um, running it. I think it was like the Cavalier or uh, Invite at UVA, and having an absolute blinder because all I could all I could think of was what was that quote? Like I'm, you know, I'm nervous. Everyone's Stand nervous. On You're nervous. Everyone's nervous. <laughs> What a legend. Um, no, just, yeah, and you're right. Like, I mean, particularly our cohort going through college, like, yeah, we were looking for the thing that, you know, well, as a, as a Kiwi, as, a, as an international athlete, um, you go in this is to college and this is your opportunity to be professional um, or as close to, uh, you know, your your funded through college you got your scholarship you've got your, your academic stuff that you just need to take care of but that's about it um you got access to some phenomenal facilities that you don't have access to in new zealand um phenomenal competition as well um i remember when i ran my 5k pb i think i got like 20th in the race and um laui lalang opened up with like a 1330 5k i think his first ever race in america and just blew us all apart but um you know you don't well, we are starting to get that sort of caliber in New Zealand, and um, I know Australia has had that for a while now, um, quite a bit faster than that. But yeah, it's just for for us to go over there. It's um, it was pretty awesome um, to go and be able to try everything um, and try and get as good as we could be in that sort of four to five year period of time and see if we could make it after that. But you're right. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot that just gets thrown at you, and particularly in this uh, age of social media, with um, with also the ability to look into what um, the the elites are doing. And you mentioned uh, Jake and Zane. Oh, sorry, um, when you were interviewing Zane, how he how he got his hands on Hashim Algarouj's training, and uh, how hard that was back in the day. But nowadays, like, I mean, there was I just reviewed a paper that. Um, or just read a paper on uh, middle distance training and the sort of trying to transition the or bridge the gap between coaching practice and and science and the, looking through the reference list, it was just you know pages of of different athletes, different elite athletes training diaries. Um, so just the prevalence of the sort of information and the accessibility is huge. And we do have um, so back to you, what I do now and how we kind of decipher through the noise it's um it's on an individual basis obviously we have like i said you have very different athletes very different coaches different programs that that i interact with i've crossed boxing through to through to um, sprint kayak and it's it's important to understand what their intended goals are um who the athlete is that we haven't sent in front of us um what the coach's philosophies are and and uh and the like and then yeah my job is to go through all of the research and try and find that those one percenters to be applied or what is to be able to differentiate between noise um and actual substance 
So that's why we do, and I work across a, an integrated group of, of nutrition, physio, physiology, um, biomechanics, SNC, uh, psychology, and um, yeah, we're and we're just constantly going through and questioning and asking and posing um, thoughts and ideas and seeing if uh, testing it on ourselves to see if it works or not. Um, that kind of leads me to, to yeah, my inevitable point is. Um, yeah, it's just I, I really firmly believe in um, research. Uh, evidence is kind of three pronged. So you have the literature as the first level, so going out there and seeing what is out there, um, and seeing what what you know randomized controlled trials are doing, what meta analysis is saying in this area, um, or looking yeah correlational studies and to give it get a good idea of of what's going on, um, determinants of performance, all that sort of stuff, give you a good picture. Then um, the next level is yeah, what's the coach and what are you seeing in the uh, in the environment? How does how do these things apply to your environment on a group level on a training group level? Um, like I said, we're we're constantly trialing it on ourselves um, as a train cohort, and then seeing if there's something there, and then applying it to or bringing it to the coach to potentially apply to our um, our group. And then the final level is actually who is the the athlete that we have in front of us. Are they, you know, you bring in sort of, as an example, uh, strength and conditioning um, and, you know, good robust evidence that, you know, heavy compound movements could have a really significant effect on some of the areas, some of the determinants of performance in endurance, um, running, cycling and the like, you know, whether it's improved economy, um, et cetera. So, you know, but you have an athlete that just says, "I just feel absolutely shit after um, after I after I lift, and we've done it now for a few months, and we've periodized it properly using the S and C, and and working with it around our training, and using the evidence to sort of concurrently organize our training. But I just it's just not making me feel faster, or I'm not getting the benefits. Um, and that's to me um, just as robust as 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 papers, um, you know, you have to have all three sort of levels of evidence to be able to go through and actually say, you know, this is something that's applicable here. And it does take time. It does take effort to, to be able to weed through all of that and go through the different levels of evidence. But um, it's a really um, important role that I can play um, for our, our athletes and our, our coaches across the sports just to be able to, yeah, help them navigate that sort of um, scenario. And it's all it's all layered, right? It's all level. So someone listening to this thinking, you know, I've got good solid training, um, really happy with that. Well, then you know maybe the next step above that is bringing in some S and C that kind of thing. But as we were talking the other day, I've been lucky enough to see on a day to day basis the way someone like Mo Farah trains, and he's got access, you know to British athletics, high performance sport equivalent behind him. Yet the main things I noticed were he runs a lot, he's in the gym a few times a week and he sleeps as much as he can. And that didn't sound like much of a, you know, you're expecting to see all these Normatex and um, massage guns and supplements and things, but it was pretty basic. Mm. Um, Is that where you start you know, you can't bring in that other stuff without starting from those big building blocks. Is that what you guys look at first? Yeah, definitely. Um, 
And so a lot of times we will get athletes coming into our sort of um, into our program of sorts. So, you know, each program is different. So like we're in a centralized model with um, the kayak crew and then our endurance uh, crew are decentralized by this, by that. I mean, you know, they're all around different coaches, different pro uh, different groups, training groups, or, you know, space around the world, you know, with the Robertsons in Africa, um, you have a couple in Australia, um, Malcolm Hicks was in, in London for a lot of his build-up or for the majority of his build-up um, into the games. So, yeah, you're kind of – you're working in different scenarios and settings, but um, we overall will get the athlete quite late. Um, you know, they've already well-established. Um, so, yeah, it's about just kind of getting an understanding of, of who they are, what they what sort of their training environment is, um, and then seeing, yeah, where we can move the dial um, – forward if a one percenter applies um but yeah a lot of times you know we will look you know are the big foundational rocks in there the big the big building blocks um the 80 percent um uh the big gains so to speak um so you know i when we talked about this the other day uh it made me realize i remember a, a concept that steven sealer um presented on his kind of hierarchy of needs of endurance needs um and it was, re- it was really cool for me to go back. Um, it's kind of based off of Maslow's hierarchy. Um, you have to kind of have the, the the initial building block before you can um, you can kind of move up the up the pyramid, so to speak. And it was really cool to go through that because yet yeah, it does come down to some pretty basic stuff first and foremost. You know, a decent amount of volume, tolerable volume. You know, obviously you're not wanting to go into um, overtrained states or, or non-functional overreaching states for um, or overreaching states for too long. Um, then you pepper in or bring in some intensity, intensify, so build volume, then intensify and um, think about your training intensity distribution and uh, some monitoring around, you know, your training, your recovery, your wellness, um, some metrics like HRV um, for autonomic um, recovery and understanding of, of your kind of adaptability to training of sorts. Uh and then you just get to work and then we can start thinking about bringing in um, other things like I was saying with, with Tokyo, you know, an emphasis on heat because of the, the requirements of the, of the event you're kind of about to go into or, hey, can we hone in on your, on your nutrition um, now that we've got access to a, to a full-fledged nutritionist, um, you know, around, you know, marathon, uh, especially in the heat um, where carbohydrate uh, utilization is, is increased um, or, you know, how do we replenish some of those things um, quicker through recovery uh, modalities. So, yeah, but at the end of the day, you kind of got to train. You've got to put in volume. We've got to bring in some intensity. You've got to periodize from general to specific to, to work towards a goal. And um, that's where we kind of start. And then we can, once those things are set, you know, I think of Lisa Carrington or Dane Lisa Carrington now and um, knowing her training over the last uh, several cycles, there are some pretty basic things that she's done and, and the areas that she's improved on, you know, are just basic things, one or two things a year or a cycle that she's focused on. So, um, you know, big Gordy always says her coach, um, coach of the decade uh, f- from the Halbergs, you know, pretty smart guy two-time um coast to coast champion uh big rocks he always talks about big rocks you know let's not get distracted by the small stuff 
got to get the training done and then we can start to think about the small stuff. Um, and it's really, you know, seeing the success of that program and particularly Lisa, it's, it, you know, it just makes me realize you just got to get the work done um, and put in the metrics around it to make sure it's working. I totally agree with that. You know, things we were big proponents of heart rate variability, um, wellness monitoring, we track, we track sleep um, uh, basically, but we do. Um, you know, we're making sure that everyone, we're checking in with the coaches every week just to make sure that people are on the track, on the right track. But at the end of the day, she's getting out there and doing hard work. I like what you said about not being, not getting, dis- or what he said about not getting distracted because if you, this one of the reasons I got off social media, Instagram, but if you went on there, you'd see a thousand different athletes doing a thousand different things. And it's so easy to be overwhelmed with, oh, my, oh, I better do this fucking stretching routine because they are in 30 minutes of these bullshit drills because these this group is, you know, it's not that there's not some value to some of that, but I, I really like what you've said about doing the basics, measuring them, HRV, um, wellness scores, but the big blocks, the basics, and then – slowly what i guess there's no point doing 30 minutes in the normatec if you're going to miss out on 30 minutes sleep right so there's a few there's certainly a hierarchy definitely yeah definitely um no and i've experienced myself um it's it's so easy to get distracted um with yeah your core routine and you just add an extra exercise on each week and suddenly you're doing buddy 16 minutes of core um where you yeah and at the end of the day it's just it's energy um that you're gonna need to refuel and um could i have got the same actual outcome um with a lot less and that's where you know having a great team around you i know uh your interview with brad bear like he he mentioned you know having a good team um finding those those good people that you can trust uh that you um can turn to because yeah as, a, as an athlete like you can't wear, it's it's hard to wear you can you, it's hard to wear the nutrition hat the physiology hat you know snc physio um and conversely i know it can be expensive um for kind of everyday runners to to, to bring in a, a nutritionist and that but you know a physio particularly a good physio um uh you know doctor if you need it um you know your coach uh, knowledgeable people that you can call on that can help you weed through um, the distraction. Um, and I think uh, one of the most pertinent things that I've taken from my um, uh, my role and my experience over the last four or five years is one of the key characteristics of, of, of high-performing athletes is um, – a lot of the really good ones, they question, they do. They want to know the ins and outs. They want to to say, well, if you're going to make me do this, why? Answer me why. But at the end of the day, or once they've asked their questions, once the plan is being talked through, it's go time. It's just, all right, this is the plan and we're just following it through and we'll, we'll debrief at the end of the year. We'll debrief consistently throughout, but we'll, the plan is the plan and we're just going for it. Um, and I think that that's something that, I think a lot of athletes can do uh, or can bring into their daily practice, no matter what level you're at, is you find your team, 
question, figure out what works for you, do all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, trust the process, trust the plan, trust the people you have around you and just get to work um, and don't get distracted along the way because how many times have you seen guys or girls, you know, after a good buildup have a, you know, get distracted and go off course um, or just before a race, you know, change up their shoes or change up their nutrition last minute, um, stick to the plan, figure out the plan at the start and then just execute it. Well, mate, on that note, I'll just we've just scratched the surface, haven't we? I think we could probably do a million of these going through different things. But um, on that, I'm gonna I'm gonna thank you for your time, and um, we'll have to have you back because I think there's a, a, quite a few things we could go through um, and pull apart there. But um, I want to thank you again. Thanks so much for spending three quarters of an hour with me, and um, we'll have to do it again soon. Oh, mate, you're welcome, and it's good to see you, bro. Um, It's good to touch base again. Awesome. Cheers.